Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 105 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Today's episode is kind of an odd one. It, it caught my attention as I was reading through it one night when I couldn't sleep and I started reading it and I was pretty shocked. Again, this is not a cold case file. It's pretty much a, a serial killer. Again, I know, I know. Graveyard, when are you going to move on? Give me a couple more and I'll move on. I'm just really hooked on serial killers and cold case files right now. But today's episode is going to be about Charlie Brandt. Not many people know Charlie Brown, but his case is really interesting. It's really trippy, to be honest with you. I, I didn't realize how crazy this whole case was going to be. I just started reading into it. I, I mean, like I said, I was bored, clicked it, and I just started, I just fell into the fucking wormhole and just kept going and going and going, and I decided to do the episode. Hopefully, you guys enjoy it. It took me a while to get this shit together. I had to search a bunch of different places to find it, but I, find, I think I got enough for a good episode, so let's go ahead and get going. Who is Charlie Brandt? Charlie Brandt was the second child of Herbert and... Ilse Brandt, two German immigrants who who originally settled in Texas before moving to Connecticut. Brandt's father worked as a laborer for a division of internal harvest, international harvester, eventually working his way up to draftsman and project engineer. The family moved frequently, and as a result, Brandt and his older sister, Angela, attended several, several different schools. You know, it's really rough on kids for, for them to move from state to state. Hell, I only moved, what is it, we moved from California to Washington, from Washington down here to Texas, and it, it, it's rough on kids, man. I mean, it's it, as soon as they as soon as they start putting in their roots and start meeting friends and start getting accustomed to how they are adjusting to the new environment. Boom, we're moving again, and it's it's shitty that kids have to do that, especially kids in the military. For military families, I mean, you get you get used to one area, meet friends, start establishing, and then boom, you got to pick up and go. My hats off goes to the military families. You know, that, that's some that's some strong shit to do. But as far as my situation went, we just got tired of California. They went, I mean, hell, I lived there for 30 years. My kids were really young. And then we moved out to Washington for five years. And my kids, they they got established, started making some friends. And we just couldn't hack living out there in Washington anymore. It was too damn cold and we hated the rain. And so we moved down down here, down south of Texas. But luckily for the kids, we don't plan on moving any, anymore. So, I mean, we have a house here. It's kind of hard to move when you have a, whole, have a house. But I can understand how, how with this with uh, Charlie Brandt, that it's a little, it's a little troubling. It's going to wear on him. You you start trying to figure things out. You start moving from place to place. You can't just never get established. It makes sense. Brandt was regarded as a good student, but was shy and had difficulty adjusting to new to new surroundings. In September 1968, Herbert was transferred to International Harvesters Plant in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The family frequently vacationed in Florida, where Brandt hunted small game with his father. There was another move, and now they're fine. Looks like finally Fort Wayne, Indiana, might be the place where where they can uh, finally settle in and just get things done. So obviously this is a serial killer. So we're, let's go ahead and jump right into the, into the murders. I mean, again, it, it was really difficult for me to find some good concrete stuff, but as I dug more in and looked in a bunch of different places, uh, we can, we can see that. I mean, not we can see, but I, I was able to see more and more information and get more things gathered for, for the episode. That way we actually had one that was longer than 15, 20 minutes. So, Let's go ahead and get into the murders of, of what Brant committed. On September 2nd, 2004, Brant and Terry evacuated from their home ahead of Hurricane Ivan. Their niece, Michelle Lynn Jones, invited them to stay at her residence near Orlando. Now, for people familiar with the South down here in the Gulf of Mexico, we are consistently hit with hurricanes. Consistently. Florida being hit uh, really bad. 
all the time. And so it's not unusual for families to board up their house and go stay with another family member who's just a little bit further outside of the range or the radius of the, of the hurricane. So in this case, it makes sense. All you Floridians know exactly what I'm talking about. Throughout the visit, Jones kept in regular contact with her mother, Mary Lou, as well as several friends, as well as several friends on the evening of September 13th. One of Jones friends, Lisa Emmons was scheduled to visit her host, her her host (laughs) was scheduled to visit her house. However, Jones discouraged her from coming, saying that the Brants had an argument after drinking. After that night, Jones stopped answering her. Jones stopped answering telephone calls, which alarmed her acquaintances. Now, allegedly, from what I read and different people's reports, was that Jones was very social. She she was very in touch with her mom, with her friends, consistently in contact with them, no matter what what time of the day. Of course, unless she was asleep. But once she woke up, she was. On, on the phone, talking to him, texting him, always in contact with him because she was just a social person. And so when she didn't answer during regular answering times or def- regular def- answering hours, it, there was definite concern and red flags that went up in, in her friends' brains, which, I mean, that's awesome. If you're able to have a group of friends that kind of know your schedule and when you when you kind of veer off that schedule, they start worrying about you. And then the growing the, the growing concern where they were unable to reach her, of course, that, I mean, you're going to start worrying even more after that. On September 15th, another one of Jones's friends, Debbie Knight, went to her house to check on her while on the phone with Jones's mother. After finding the front door locked, Knight tried to enter the house through the garage where she found Brant's decomposing body hanging from the rafters. He had hanged himself using bedsheets. For those of you, again, who aren't familiar with the South, the South, even all the way up into December, especially Florida, it gets really humid and really warm. So during the day, you might have 90, 95 with like 60, 70, 80% humidity. But as soon as that sun goes down, the humidity can reach up to 100% when it's still like 70, 80, 90 degrees outside and it is hot and it is disgusting. From my understanding, Florida is like that almost every time. I think they only get like a few a few days of actual cool Versus the entire heat and humidity that they reach. So think about it. This is just hurricane season, which hurricane season is when the the temp starts starts cooling off, or the 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 heat around is the the actual temperature is still high, but there's cool breezes which mix and then forces hurricanes and all this other stuff that blows onto to land. So night, Jones's friend walks in and and it just just. Think about the smell just for one minute. Think, think of the, the odor of a decomposing body hanging in a hot, humid, non-ventilated garage. Just think about that. Go ahead. I'll wait. Did you think about it? Because that's pretty fucking gross if you ask me. Just, and then you just see somebody hanging, decomposing from them. Oh, God damn. I could imagine, man. Poor, poor Knight. Knight contacted the police who entered the house and found the bodies of Brown's wife and niece. Terry had been stabbed seven times in the chest while lying on the couch. Jones had been decapitated and disemboweled with her heart and organs removed and her head was placed next to her body. The weapons used in the crimes had been knives from Jones's kitchen. Terry, which is his wife, had been stabbed seven times in the chest, seven times in the chest, while his niece, Jones, which alleged, I mean, reports is pretty accurate that he, he was the serial killer or the, or the, the, the murderer. She had been decapitated and disemboweled with her heart and organs removed and her head, her fucking head was placed next to her body. Now with, with this podcast, and I'm sure with a lot of other crime and uh, or crime podcasts that you've heard out there, 
you we've heard some pretty fucked up shit. We honestly have. We've I mean from Richard Ramirez to uh, the what is man? I, there, there's just a I can't my 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 brain has so many serial killers in my head. I can't even think of one to come out right now. But we've read a lot of stuff, and we've heard a lot of stuff. And now with this case with Charlie Brandt, he stabs his wife seven times, and then disembowels and dis uh, decapitated his niece and just left her heart. I mean, excuse me, left her head right next to her body while removing her heart and organs. You know that that takes that that takes a, a fucked up individual to do something that intense and that's that's vicious. That's that, that I mean that's probably one of the most extreme cases that I've read. I mean, just recently the one my last episode that I did on uh, Israel Keys, that crazy motherfucker stitched this girl's eyes open to take a quote a live photo so he can collect the thirty thousand dollar ransom, and now we have this guy leaving his niece's head right next to her body. Listener discretion is advised, by the way. <laughs> it's a little late for that. But this was sick motherfucker is going to do this shit. I mean, I, I'm so fascinated with the minds and brains of these individuals and what their thought process and exactly when is the moment that they snap. It, it just, it's insane to me, no pun intended, that someone can be this ruthless and it just casually and easily decapitate someone and then stab their wife seven times. It's insane to me. Michelle Jones was mutilated and dismembered by Brandt. He used a kitchen knife to cut off her head and breast and removed her left leg with the precision of a surgeon. He removed organs before hanging himself. Yeah, you chicken asshole. Why didn't you just wait for, for authorities to get you if you're that badass? Why didn't you just sit there in the, in the couch or sit there in the living room on the couch and call and wait to be arrested? Now you have to take your own life because you know you done fucked up. Following the discovery of the bodies, a search of Brant's residence on Big Pine Key revealed that he was a monthly subscriber to Victoria's Secrets catalog, had an extensive collection of surgery-themed books, posters, and clippings, and regularly searched online for autopsy photos and snuff film websites depicting violence against women. You can learn a lot from someone's search history. And one of the big jokes is that when I die, the first thing I want you to do is clear my browser. In a lot of cases, it's it's really funny and it's a really joke. Like, oh, what are you going to see? But in cases like this guy, like Charlie Brandt, this guy was actively searching out snuff film. Now, if you if you don't know what a snuff film is, a snuff film is like one of the worst type of pornographic sexualized videos. I mean, it's anywhere from torture, rape, murder, abuse. It, it, it's, a, it's a different brand of pornography. Well, how do you know that, Graveyard? Because I read about it. And if you watch the movie Eight Millimeter with Nicolas Cage, which was a pretty badass movie, to be honest with you, it 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 kind of sparks a little more into what you're wondering and what what to actually look into. Now, I didn't look at any of those films. Let's be straight, but I did r- read the definitions and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, articles that talked about snuff. It's a pretty it's a pretty fucked up category. So I do not again I do not advise you to go seek that shit out. If you do and you're worried about yourself, go get some help. But I mean, you have to check this out. When when detectives went into the home of Brant, so the Brant's home, they, he was a monthly subscriber to Victoria's Secret catalog, which isn't really weird if you want your wife wearing sexy lingerie. It's not a big deal. But if you're subscribed to it, but you're not purchasing any of the lingerie for your wife, and you don't have a mistress, then it's kind of it's kind of questionable on why. 
on why you would be a monthly subscriber to Victoria's Secret catalogs, right? Right. I mean, at least I would think so. That would just raise a red flag if I, I mean, the, Brad's wife would just with the with the lingerie catalog alone should have been questioning. But I mean, with a bunch of other medical related searches and everything without him trying to aspire a pursue of career in the medical field, that would probably raise a little concern for his wife on why her husband was searching this stuff up. At least, I mean, now, I mean, it's easy for me to say because I, I, I've read from beginning to end everything that happened. So, I mean, I, I guess it's different when things happen, but let's continue. Police determined that Brant's murder of Jones indicated past experience, and because he traveled often due to his job, police checked old, ca- old ca- cold cases in Florida that matched his apparent mod- modus operandi, or MO. They also launched requests for similar inquiries in the U.S. and abroad. The investigation uncovered evidence linking Brandt to the 1989 murder of a woman near his home. Now, when I told you that this, this shit was kind of all over the place, this shit was kind of all over the place. So let's go ahead and jump back to the wife. We're going to look at some, to some concerns about what family and friends kind of raised an eyebrow, out, eyebrow up at, but didn't really pursue anything just based off of the kind of attitude that Brant carried with him. A long unsolved murder in Monroe County was blamed Friday on suspected killer Carl Charlie Brant amid new information that also revealed Brant's wife suspected all along that he was the killer. Now, this isn't new age. This is back in the early 2000s. This isn't now. This isn't recent. So Brant's wife suspected that he was the killer. That he all she all along suspected that he was a killer, but never said anything to anyone about it. Hmm. Brant's ties to the additional murder were, were uncovered not by investigators, but by producers of the CBS show 48 Hours who passed along the information to authorities, Seminole Sheriff's investigator Rob Hermert said Friday. Jim Graves, who was once married to Carl Brant's oldest sister, said that Teresa Brant told him her husband came home wet and covered with blood about the time Sherry Perry show was killed less than 1,000 feet, 1, feet from their home in July of 1989. So Carl Brandt's brother-in-law was told by Brandt's wife, Teresa or Terry, that her husband came home wet and covered with blood one evening. About the time that one of the one of the missing or one of the cold case files victims, Sherry Perisho, 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 P-E-R-I-S-H-O. I, I can't pronounce that word. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. She was killed less than a thousand feet from their home. Hmm. That's kind of suspicious if you ask me. Teresa Brandt confided in her then brother-in-law who lives in Volusia County a short time after Perisho's body was found, Hermert said. Graves could not be reached for comment Friday. Monroe County investigators also found a witness who identified Brant as the man she saw in the area right after the murder. The investigator said, quote, we are satisfied that Carl Brant was the murderer of Sherry Perisho, Monroe County Sheriff Rick Roth said. Perisho's throat was slashed and she was nearly decapitated. Her heart also was cut out of her chest, authorities said. Those became key details soon after deputy sheriffs uncovered the grisly double murder-suicide in Seminole County, Florida. Teresa Brandt suspected her husband was a murderer, surprised investigators. She kept detailed diaries, and investigators had spent hours poring over them. Allegedly, 
here or not allegedly, but there was documents from her diary, which weren't really, I mean, here they says that it was detailed, but it wasn't really detailed. It was more like concerns. Husband came home at 1, 1 a.m. or Charlie never came home. Charlie acting funny, mysterious uh, stains on his clothes. Uh, unable or uh, unplanned fishing trip during during the evening. So certain things like that were hit on on or were written down in the diary of his wife, Terry Brandt or Teresa Brandt. But none of it was ever concerned enough for her to call law enforcement, which I completely understand. You don't ever want to believe that well, unless you have without a, a doubt. But you don't you don't want to believe that the person that you're with is a serial killer, is a murderer, or is capable of harming another person. You don't want to believe that. Especially in this case with, with the reports is that Charlie Brandt never showed any sight of, sign of aggression. Not once. I mean, yeah, little arguments, little here and there, but never violent, explosive, lost controls, breaking things, busting holes in the wall. None of that was ever evident or reported from any friends or family about Charlie Brandt. So I can understand on Teresa's part where you don't want to believe that your husband is capable of murder, but at the same time, he's doing things. On the same time, he's doing things that raise your suspicion and things are coincidentally matching up to his, his time gone away from the house. It's pretty crazy. On the evening of January 3rd, 1971, after their children had turned in for the night in their Fort Wayne home, Herbert Brandt, which was his father, Charlie Brandt's father, was shaving in the bathroom while, I, I can't pronounce the name, Ilsley, Illy, I-L-S-E, I believe, eight months pregnant, was taking a bath. So mom and dad were in the bath, were in the bathroom, which isn't uncommon. I mean, his dad was shaving, his mom was, was taking a bath. Not a big deal, right? She's eight months pregnant. Yeah. It, women, 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 period, love baths. And then when you can get some sort of comfort and release some, some pressure on the body, yeah, jump at the tub, especially if you're pregnant. Eight months? That, that's, that's, that's big pregnant. Charlie Brandt, then age 13, abruptly walked into the bathroom and shot both parents at, pl- at point-blank range with his father's handgun, which he had taken from a dresser. At age 13, Charlie walked into the bathroom and shot both parents. At point blank range. His father survived, but his mother and the fetus were killed instantly. Brant then entered his sister's Angela's room and attempted to shoot her, but his gun would not fire. What's kind of crazy is that this story is one of those that that kind of reminds me of Hell House, the where where uh, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but he walks in and shoots his entire family because the house told him to. It just kind of got an eerie similarity where. The son walks in, 13-year-old boy walks in and then shoots his, his family. It's kind, of, it's kind of strange. It's a weird coincidence. After a physical struggle, Angela managed to calm her brother down by promising to him that she would help him figure out what to do. Angela eventually convinced Brandt to go upstairs to retrieve blankets for their infant sisters who were unharmed before fleeing the house and seeking help from the neighbors. Good thinking on her part. Could you imagine, though, the gun, the gun jammed. It just failed to fire for whatever reason. He just fired off two rounds into his parents. And then he went to go shoot his sister, but the gun just did not fire, just jammed. After pursuing his terrified sister outside, Brant knocked on a neighbor's door telling her, saying, quote, I just shot my mom and dad, end quote. Herbert later identified his son as his attacker. Well, yeah, it's kind of hard not to. 
After the shooting, Brant told Angela that he could not remember what he had done. Angela described her brother as being in a trance-like state, which broke during their struggle. Now, it's not uncommon for children, especially children. I'm not too sure about adults. Brian, maybe you can help me out on that. On that, Send me an email or send me a text. Where young kids, depending on what's going on in their life, it doesn't have to be necessarily abuse, although abuse is a huge contributor to that. But they kind of disassociate. They, they kind of get away from reality in order to fulfill or commit the act that which they are committing. And then after, after everything has, has died down or something snaps them out, like in this case, there was a struggle, they supposedly legitimately do not know what they have done or what had happened. One of the best cases that, or one of the best examples of that was the remake of, of, the, of Halloween by Rob Zombie, where, where Michael Myers killed his family. And when the psychiatrist was evaluating him, Michael Myers, as a child, said, I don't remember anything. And he would ask the psychiatrist, is my family fine? When are they going to come visit? And he would ask about the deceased family members. So... It's not uncommon, and I've read some about that off and on for a while, but I, I, I don't know what, it ex- what, what it's exactly called. Brian, again, text me if you know exactly what that is. But it's kind of trippy that knowing that you can do that, not you yourself or you personally, but people can disassociate, commit a horrible act of violence, and then legitimately or supposedly have no recollection of what they have done or what was what what happened? It's kind of trippy if you ask me. It's kind of it's 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 bizarre, but it's, it has to do with the brain. Upon being interviewed by police, Brant attributed the shooting to a combination of things related to school, stating saying stating that everything sort of snapped in my mind. I felt like I never felt before. Brant also alluded to an incident that took place a few days before the shooting near the end of his family's annual Christmas vacation in Florida, in which Herbert shot and killed their dog while the two were hunting. So his son saw his dad shoot their, their family pet, which I mean, that's, that's traumatizing for a kid. You kill, you kill the family dog. That, that's kind of traumatizing. So this is led to believe that this, this leads me to believe that the father himself has some issues and maybe possibly it could be hereditary. Again, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't know. It could, it could be passed through the genes that this sort of behavior, like maybe some kind of, not, not so much of an antisocial behavior, but kind of like a sociopathic gene that might be possible. Again, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here because my mind is trying to figure out why and how or why in the hell would, would his father just shoot the dog? I couldn't find anything why the father shot the dog. It didn't, it didn't bite him. It didn't do, I, I guess, I'm assuming, and you know what happens when you assume, that maybe the dog wasn't cooperating or following the rules and regulations that were put in place by the dad, but the dad shooting the family dog in front of the son is very traumatic. Very traumatic. Three separate, three separate psychiatric evaluations failed to determine what triggered the shooting. Because he was too young to be tried for murder under Indiana law, Brant spent one year at a psychiatric hospital before being released back into the custody of his family in June 1972. 13 years old, this is back in the 70s where it's kind of hard. It was Back then, it was kind of hard to, to convict a child, especially at 13. I mean, he just shot his parent. He killed his mom, shot his dad, and then attempted to murder his, his sister. 
But then three psychiatric evaluations from three different psychiatrists didn't reveal any sort of responsibility or any sort of mental illness or any sort of mental break that would explain what caused the shooting. It's kind of trippy out. I mean, tripping me out, if you ask me. Musician Jim Graves spent time with Charlie in the 1980s when he was married to Angela, which is his sister. Uh, Angela Brandt, which is Charlie Brandt's sister. He'll never forget the day she confided in him that decades before, Charlie had shot their parents, killing their pregnant mother. Mr. Graves said, saying, quote, I came home one day and she was crying rather uncontrollably and said she had something that she absolutely had to talk to me about, Jim recalls. But he says that after getting to know him, it seemed clear that whatever had happened years before, Charlie was okay now. That's another thing that's blowing my mind. This kid, this, this kid at 13 years old shot and killed his mother, shot his father and attempted to murder his sister. Spent one year in a psychiatric facility, was released in 1972, and then about 20, 30 years later, he, he, he managed to convince everyone around him that he was okay, even his own brother-in-law, even his own brother-in-law stating, saying that even though what happened years before, Charlie seemed okay. Mr. Graves also was, said, was also said, quote, he was so gentle that when there was a bug in the house, he would, he would refuse to step on it and carried it outside. So what do you think? Let me know. Let me know. Email me, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com, Instagram, graveyardgrumblerpodcast. I'm going to post a little audio clip on this so you, so you can leave me a message there. Or I'll just, I'll, I'll post. I, I'll post it on my Instagram on, about this episode. So what do you think it is? How can you manage to stay dormant? I mean, because that's what happened, right? The killer side of Charlie Brandt stayed dormant for over 30 years or for over 20 years. I don't know the exact math. I, I just have a good enough diploma. But what, what, what would cause for them to be dormant for that long and then all of a sudden have maybe an outburst, have a uncontrollable, an uncontrolled desire? I mean, in my opinion, what I would think is that if you've killed and you've never fully worked out or coped or came to terms on what triggered that, you're never completely finished or you still have those desires to seek what you initially did to your mom and the dad. I could be completely wrong. I usually am. But I want to know. Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Let me know. I'm curious. Jim regrets that he didn't pay more attention, especially during one instance after he and Angela split up and the two men got to talking. So Jim Graves and Angela had separated and uh, Charlie Brandt was hanging out with Mr. Graves just having some beers. Jim says, quote, we were having a few beers after fishing all day and everything. I was just really despondent. Somehow we started talking about revenge. Well, you know, you get your feelings hurt and want to lash out. I believe he looked at me and said, saying, quote, well, if you really want to get revenge, you should kill somebody and and cut their heart out, Jim recalls. And it creeped me out, Jim said, quote. Now, did, did, did Charlie Brandt make that comment to where he says, hey, man, if you want to get revenge, you should kill somebody and cut their heart out? Did he mean that, that Mr. Graves should kill his ex-wife, which is Charlie's sister, and cu- cut her heart out? Or was it just a general statement saying, hey, maybe you should do this. It'll make you feel better. That, that's, I mean, 
What, what would you, I mean, okay, look, I, I love my friends. I really do. Brian, I, you know, I love you to death. We've been friends for a long time. I have a lot of good friends that, that I've had over years. I mean, 10 plus, 15 plus years. And if one of you guys ever told me that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit you up about it immediately. Like, yeah, what the fuck does that mean? And I'm probably going to make a call to a mental health person to come evaluate you. And that's because I love you. It's not because I want you put away. It's not because you scare me. But that's some trippy shit to tell your friend especially about someone that was married to your sister. If you want to get revenge, murder someone and cut their heart out. That's pretty specific. Not beat the shit out of them, not go cheat on someone. Kill somebody and cut their heart out. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling some sort of mental health evaluator to come check you guys out. But unfortunately, in the world of guys, that's just banter and boy talk, and, and which is fucking ridiculous if you ask me. When someone throws up red flags, warning signs with big-ass tornado alarms sounding like that, then maybe you should take a little more precaution and look into it. Yeah, you might not be, you, you might not want to be that dickhead friend that that kind of dimes out your friend. But yo, what if by you doing that, you prevent some atrocity from occurring? Just just maybe. Just maybe. I'm I'm just throwing that out there. But at that time, just Jim dismissed it. And years later, when a new girlfriend wanted to fix up her friend Terry, Jim called Charlie. So they remained, they remained friends after the separation, but Jim dismissed it. Mr. Graves said, yeah, forget it, man. That's kind of weird. We're drunk. He just let it out. Whatever. Hey, but my friend has this girl, Terry, which we all know becomes Mr. Or Charlie Brandt's wife. Let me hook you up. It doesn't matter you said you wanted, that you, you have a thought or one of your plans of revenge is to kill someone and cut their heart out. I'm going to hook you up with this girl anyway. Don't trip, homie. I got you, my boy. Boy, I tell you. Postmortem investigation. We all know that whenever someone has murdered someone, they try to dig up as much as they can, no matter what, how, where, and why. They want to come up with answers to see if they can prevent the next atrocity from occurring, or if they can finally, or they can figure out and give the the victim's family some closure. Which I completely understand. You don't want to just let it go and say, "Eh, he killed himself. We're done. He was there. Case closed. Hey, Paulie, let's order some fucking pizza." You're going to investigate because you want to find out what led to it, what drove to it, to maybe hopefully put put this in action and prevent something from happening in the future. 400 miles from Orlando, the Brant's house on Big Pine Key sat frozen in time, boarded up meticulously in in preparation for the storm. An investigator said, I never see anything like it. Charlie took took it to the extreme. Every piece of wooden panel that was cut for each window looked like it had been custom fit. The holes were the holes for the doorknobs on the French doors were meticulously cut, perfectly perfectly around circles. Explains Detective Hermert or Hemert. Inside the house, things were just as precise. The first shot came when Her- when Hermert stepped into the Brant's bedroom and spotted a graphic poster of the female anatomy on the back of the bedroom door. Her hair is put up in a bun, which I had never seen before, and it's showing the skeletal system and the muscular system. Hemert explains, describing the doctor's office style poster. Wouldn't that just be weird? Your your husband, your husband isn't in the medical field at all. Never has been. Never had any aspirations of becoming anything in the medical field. Not a doctor. Not even a CNA. But yet he has a, a an anatomy poster of a woman, a female anatomy poster of a woman taped on the back door where you everyone can see it when you open the door in the bedroom. Wouldn't that raise a little bit of questions? What would you think? Ladies, let me know in the graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. 
Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram. Again, I'll, I will put a, a post on my Instagram with this episode. If your husband, who wasn't in the medical field, had no aspirations of being in the medical field, had a female anat- anatomical poster in your bedroom, just there chilling, what would you think? Yeah, I know. I mean, probably your, your, your thought is probably a little, little obscured after listening to the beginning part of this podcast or of, of this episode, but what would you think? I'm going to tell you right now, if my wife had that of a dude, an, an, an anatomical or a, a poster, a, a doctor style poster of a male anatomy posted on my door, we're going to have a talk. Number one, I don't want to see that shit every day. And number two, are you good? Is there something wrong? I mean, why, why do you want to see the inside of a dude? Maybe I'm thinking too much into it. Maybe she wasn't thinking too much into it. Let's continue. Terry would have seen the poster every day, and Hermit wonders whether she hadn't considered it a big deal. Charlie and Terry were not in the medical profession. We saw no reason for that chart to be there. What is this doing in someone's home? The the investigator wonders. That's the same thing I just said. Why was it there? The investigator had an unsettling answer to his own question. I'm I'm looking at a chart that's got these portions of the body exposed, and he's virtually duplicated or exposed some of those areas of the body in what he did with Michelle. Hemert explains. The investigator had an unsettling answer to his own question. Charlie Brandt virtually duplicated or exposed some of the same areas of the body when he murdered Michelle Jones. How trippy is that? What you see has a resemblance of what the person's body looks like. Crazy. And there were other eerie reminders, including medical books, journals, and an anatomy book. And in the book, there was a newspaper clipping that showed a human heart, says Hammert. Knowing what he did to Michelle and then finding those things, it all started to make sense. This guy was stunning. This guy was studying. Charlie Brandt was studying on how to do what, whatever got him off or whatever in his brain caused him to do what he did. This dude was studying for an exam that he was never going to take. As did the Victoria's Secrets catalogs found in the house addressed to Charlie. He always referred to Michelle Jones as Victoria's Secret. He gave her that name. Look, if an uncle of my wife or even my own brother never called one of my kids by their name or my daughter, my 19-year-old daughter, and gave her a nickname like that, oh, we're going to have some conversations. We're going to have a little talk. He's about to catch these pippity-paps right to the throat at least seven times. That, that's creepy, that's eerie, and that's definitely a way, uh, something that should be addressed immediately. Charlie never referred to her as Michelle. Far from being just a friendly uncle to the horror of the Jones family, Charlie had been secretly infatuated with his own niece. See what I mean? Far from being just a friendly uncle... To the horror of the Jones family, Charlie had been secretly infatuated with his own niece. All these red flags and all these concerns being thrown up left and right, but when you don't know what to look for or you kind of just brush it off because the person in general is just a good dude, a lot of shit happens. Uh, molestation, assault, violence, whatever, whatever the case may be, something might occur, and a lot of times it does when someone is throwing up red flags, kind of like, what is that called? Uh, I can't think of the word right now. Where, should I, I literally can't think of the word. But where, where you, they, they're not, it's not, or passive, there you go. Passive red flags. They're passively giving up red flags. It's not just blatant, 
big time, whoa, you need to calm down. But there's kind of little things where you raise your eyebrows like, man, that, that doesn't sound right. But people just brush it under the, wrong, uh, under the rug because generally this guy's a good dude and he wouldn't hurt a fly. Like the guy said, this is, like Mr. Graves said, he would pick up a bug and take it out rather than killing it. So nobody, nobody really paid too much attention about that, but you should. Hemert says Charlie was obsessed with, with Michelle. He was fascinated by her, and I think ultimately he intended on killing her. I think that's evident in the way he spoke about her and the things that looked at things that he looked at on the internet. That's crazy. Literally, that's 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 crazy. When someone is obsessed with an individual, that they're looking up different ways to do what they want to do with them, fantasizing about that. And that's pretty much what, what was done where Charlie Brandt was doing. When investigators examined Brandt's computer, they found that he had on ghastly websites that featured death fantasies, necrophilia, and violence against women. Boom, what did I just say? The browser, man. The browser's going to save it all. If you think that you're concerned about something, I'm telling you right now, there's signs everywhere, especially with technology. And then now, in this case, when, invest- when the investigators exam- examined Brandt's computer, they found some fucked up shit on there. Websites that were insane that sh- people shouldn't really be looking up. Death fantasies, necrophilia, and violence against women. Those are red flags. Those are bright, bright red flags with, with sirens blaring on them. So that, that's, that's not good. And it sucks that they found this after the fact and not before. It, it, oh my gosh! If if the wife who had the, the little tingling in her in her brain, her little spider senses, if she had just mentioned something to the cops, maybe this might have been prevented. Maybe, but again, when you love someone and they don't really show physically or in your home or in your presence that they are any sort of thought for concern, it's kind of hard to throw the yellow flag and say, "Hey, yo, that's a penalty." We need to get this shit evaluated. So again, I I don't blame her, but at the same time, I kind of blame her. Let me know what you guys would have done. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Graveyardgrumbler podcast on Instagram. If your spouse, man or woman, husband or wife, it doesn't matter. If they were showing like passive red flags like this, what would you have done? I know it's difficult for me. I probably would have done the same thing Terry Brandt did, which was nothing. I love my baby mama. I'll never let her go. You know what I mean? I just, I, I don't think I would be able to, to just drop dimes on her and uh, without any hardcore physical proof that she was capable of doing such atrocities. And in this case, I bet Brant, I mean, excuse me, uh, Terry, yeah, Terry Brant thought the same thing. My husband's such a nice guy. Yeah, he kind of gives me the creepy heebity-jeebities, but I don't think he would be capable of doing this shit. So I don't blame her. I really don't. I can't blame her for not doing anything because I probably, more than likely, I know 100%, not probably, I know 100% I wouldn't have done anything. There would have been no way unless I would have had concrete evidence or proof right dropped right in front of me. Then maybe. Like I said, I love my baby mama. I'll never let her go. So let me know what you guys would have done. Let me know. Leave, send me a message, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com, graveyardgrumbler podcast on Instagram. You saw where he may have gotten some of his ideas and thoughts and fantasies from, says Hammer. The thing that we noted immediately was that the things he did with her body did not appear to be someone who had done this for the first time. There had to be more. So basically what's going on is that they're trying to say the Florida, the Florida investigators who are in this, doing this investigation saying, look, man, this shit is too precise. This shit's too professional. This shit is too clean cut 
for him not to have done it before. There has to be other bodies. There has to be. There has to be. And I don't, I don't blame him. You would think so. Why else would he kill himself? Shocking history. Again, I'm going to touch in on a little bit more of what we already found out, which I was shocked when I read that, that he was capable of doing this. So again, again, this is what I said. When, when I started doing this, this stuff, I started throwing all this shit around. I try to organize it the best way possible to make it make sense. Charlie walked into a bathroom while his father was shaving, shot him in the back. He went down. He stood over her mother. She was in a bathtub bathing and fired several rounds into her body and killed her. She was eight, mu- she was eight months pregnant. Only a few crime scene photos survive in the Fort Wayne Police Archives. Dan Feigl, then a young detective, was in charge of the investigation. When the call came, when the call came, he remembers hurrying to the hospital, hoping that Charlie's critically wounded father would survive and be able to explain what had happened. That's, I mean, that's some difficult shit. I'm not gonna lie. Your own, your own kid shoots you, kills your mother, fires multiple rounds in in the mom. It's difficult for you to, number one, comprehend what just happened. Number two, want to talk about it and try to put and actually put the blame on the on the person who committed the, the crime, the act or the crime. I mean, that's your son. It would be hard as fuck for me to, to dime out my son. It'd be hard as fuck. I don't know if I would be able to do it. I would say, no, nah, man, I cut myself shaving. even though I have a big ass bullet wound in my back. No, nah, man, I just got a new razor. Cut myself shaving. I don't know if I'd be able to dime my kid out. Graveyard Grumbler at mail.com, Graveyard Grumbler, Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram. Let me know if you would be able to drop dimes on your own kids if they did this. Let me know. The father just kept saying, I don't know why my son did this. I have no idea as to why my son did this. Feigl remembers. The dad kept repeating it over and over and over. He was just shot. He was in shock. Yeah, of course. But he did confirm that his son had done it, and Feigl proceeded to take the boy into custody. He was in shock. His eyes were dilated, and he couldn't understand why he had done this, says Feigl. Police didn't know what to make of their 13-year-old killer. The Indiana courts ordered that Charlie undergo three separate psychological evaluations. That's number one. You have a 13-year-old killer back in the 70s. What, what, I mean, what else are you do? You're not going to throw the book at him. Although, I mean, nowadays you get tried as an adult because like, there, there was a moment there where, where adolescent crimes were shooting through the roof. And so they, had, they really had no choice but to convict these adolescents as adults. One was with, one was with psychiatrist Ronald Panzer, who agreed with his two colleagues that Charlie was something of a mystery. The doctor saying, quote, basically, I was looking for mental illness and he wasn't showing the signs and symptoms of serious mental illness, which I thought was what the court wanted to know, says Panzer. Can you imagine evaluating someone who just committed a horrible crime at the age of 13? You're 100% sure that there's some sort of mental illness, some sort of mental break that had that, that happened. But upon evaluation with two other psychiatrists, mind you. They couldn't find any clear signs of mental illness. I don't know what to I don't I don't know what to say about that. I don't know what to think about that because I'm not that advanced in the study of psychology. I wish I was. I should be. Brian shut up. I know you're going to say something. Oh, I tell you. But I I I just it's kind of strange that there was three psychiatric evaluations. But all of them came up negative or deemed sane. That he was sane during this entire time. They they can't explain what caused him to have this break 
and kill his mom and shoot his dad in an attempt to kill his sister. Panzer talked with Charlie about his friends, his family, his interests, trying to uncover some underlying problem. The doctor saying, quote, this kid did well in school. He didn't get into any trouble. He loved his family, he said. And the family said that he was a loving kid, you know, so there wasn't anything to diagnose, end quote. The psychiatrist explained, but there was something wrong with him, definitely. The doctor says, but there was something wrong with him, definitely, but no one could figure out what it was. This guy's a fucking anomaly. Let me know. For all of you guys who are interested in mental health, throw me some lines. What do you think was wrong with this guy? Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Graveyardgrumbler at Graveyardgrumbler podcast on Instagram. I'm curious. I'm, this thing's driving me mad. To the layperson, this doesn't make sense. The guy killed his mother. She's pregnant. Shot his father. Why doesn't he have a mental illness? But he doesn't have a diagnosable mental illness. Why? Panzer asked. We found no psychosis, no distorted thinking that would basically be a reason for this crime to be done. No history of abuse. No history of anything. But yet, there's something that, that went wrong. There's something that short-circuited in his brain that caused him to shoot his pregnant mom and shoot his dad and attempt to kill his sister. The doctor said, quote, remember, the doctor said, we found no psychosis, no distorted thinking. We found none of it. But there has to be some sort of mental illness, right? You would think. Whatever his demons in Indiana, 13-year-old Charlie was still too young to be held criminally responsible for his crimes. So he was never charged with murder and he was never brought to trial. Instead, a grand jury investigated and issued Instead, a grand jury investigated and issued an anonymous warning writing that such antisocial conduct could repeat itself in his in the future. 100% accurate. I think if someone who who's that antisocial or disassociated or disconnected with reality for that exact crime or for a crime and violence period is bound to happen again, especially if it goes untreated. You can, you can throw tons of medication at someone, but never fully fix the issue at hand. With Charlie Brandt, this was 100% evident where they didn't know, but a grand jury issued a statement saying that such antisocial conduct could repeat itself in the future, and they're 100% right. And that goes for a lot of people who had antisocial slash disconnected reality behavior, realistic behavior. It's, good, it's bound to repeat itself. It could lay dormant for years, or boom, it could happen right after the first occurrence. Charlie's, Charlie was sent to a psychiatric hospital where he stayed just over a year, only until his forgiving father could win his release. Herbert Brandt then pulled up stakes at... Herbert Brandt then pulled up stakes and moved the entire family, including Charlie, to Florida. His father never spoke to Charlie about what took place, says Herbert. Never said, hey, Charlie, why did you shoot me? Why did you kill your mother, you know? What were you thinking? How about an apology? None of those things. Just He just accepted him back into the home as if nothing happened, end quote. How do you address that? How are you afraid of your son and you don't want to bring it up, but you want to bring it up, but you don't know how? Number one, you're not a professional. Number two, you're worried that if you, if you say something wrong, or at least I would be, you trigger something again, and he does it again. How, how do you approach that? What, what, I mean, what, best say, what, what, base, what other scenario would be better for this? You just sweep it under the rug and let it go, or do you actually try to address it? 
Remember, this has happened in the 70s and 80s, so mental health wasn't really a big treatable factor. Nobody really cared too much about it. It was taboo at the time. If, if you go seek this, then you're crazy and you're a weirdo. Nobody, and that's not true. That's far from the truth. Just like your physical body gets sick, gets sick, your brain gets sick. There's nothing wrong with that. Just go get the help. But in this case, the father, I, I don't know. I, again, I can't say if he, what he did was correct or what he did was wrong. Obviously, not addressing it might have kind of a problem, but maybe addressing it might cause a problem. I don't know. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. Which is the two of the lesser evil? What will you choose? Even Charlie's two baby sisters, too young to remember, were never told the truth about their mother's death, all of which infuriates Michelle's parents, Bill and Mary Lou. There's something wrong here. There's something wrong with the system that allows a 13-year-old boy to kill his mother, to try to kill his father and an older sister, and nothing was done, says Mary Lou. She's absolutely right. According to reports that the sisters were told that Michelle's, or excuse me, that uh, the Charlie Brandt's sisters were told that their mother was killed in a car accident. They weren't told that, that Charlie, their own brother, had murdered their mother and their unborn child or their own unborn sibling. D'Ambrosa doesn't think well doesn't think we'll ever know how many murders Charlie is responsible for. Oh my gosh. D'Ambrosa doesn't think we'll ever know how many murders Charlie is responsible for, but she is working with Hermert and a task force from around the state to at least try to narrow it down. Yeah, could you imagine? With such an intense person or a crime or brutal murder that you don't really know because a lot of them are are similar to his MO. It was the 1995 murder of Darlene Toller, a prostitute in Miami's Little Havana section. Detective Pat Diaz handled the the investigation and remembers that it was an unusual case. Like Michelle Jones, Toller had been decapitated and and had her heart removed. Again, the M.O., a lot of similarities. Toller's body was found along a highway. Apart from the manner of her death, two bits of evidence convinced Diaz that Brant was the killer. The body was wrapped up in a blanket, then wrapped up in a plastic and tied, almost like a package, she explains. In that blanket, dog hairs were found. Police also found dog hairs in the back of Charlie Brandt's truck. Brandt's truck also yielded another clue. But again, they, they weren't able because of inconclusive evidence. It was difficult to, to run the, the animal's hair and get a fine match or a perfect match. And again, the, with the dog hair, it could have been that he may, may have just slept with a with sex worker which would explain why she had dog hair on her and they couldn't really put him at the exact scene of the crime or the exact murder or person who committed the crime. We have all this technology. I mean, it, and it advances every year, but back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it just was so difficult to, to commit and find, without a doubt, hardcore evidence and trace, tracing it back to the person who committed the crime. So that, that was one of the reasons why they were unable to... 100%, without a doubt, connect the death Charlie Branch, the sex worker in, in Little Havana. So no closure. Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. Let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. It was, like I said, it was kind of a trippy episode when I started reading it. I, I, I was kind of, I was intrigued and I couldn't, I, I wasn't trying to figure out what, not why I wasn't trying. I was trying to figure out how I would spin this and how I would get this to go the way I wanted to. So, I think I think one of the most bizarre, intense, ruthless serial killers. I, I wholeheartedly, one hundred percent, don't don't uh, doubt one bit 
that he has several other victims. But let me read you some other stuff. Graveyard Grumbler's final rap. When investigators were looking again at the the Parashow murders, they talked with Graves, who under oath was much more specific about Terry's story. Remember, Terry's uh is is Charlie Brandt's wife who had concerns that he murdered someone around their their home. She apparently found Charlie downstairs and had and had blood on him. And she asked him what had happened, and he gave an excuse that he was filleting fish. Although it was a work day, it was in the evening. She went ahead and believed him. Detective Daly recalls. Your husband comes home covered in blood. Ask what you're doing. He said, I was filleting fish. Although he fillets fish regularly, wouldn't you want to wear an apron so you wouldn't get fish guts and, and all that other shit all over your clothes? Come on now. And then on top of that, wouldn't you change your clothes before you even walk in? So obviously he wasn't filleting fish. You would change something before you even got out, but got into the house. There's no way, I don't care who you're, no woman's going to want, want uh, or not, you know, let me rephrase that. No spouse is going to want their spouse to come in covered in, in fish ass with 19 layers of hammered ass stink right into their home with all that shit all over them. Still, questions persist why there's nothing about the incident in Terry's diary or whether she really believed her husband's explanation. If not, why did she stay with him? Again, it's kind of hard when, when you love someone, you don't want to believe that they're capable of something so horrific. Although there might be passive red flags being thrown around, you don't want to fully believe that. You just don't. Dally has her own theory. You're talking about somebody that you're in a relationship with. You don't want to believe somebody that you have committed your life with would commit a crime, especially that heinous, she explains. But in the end, Charlie fooled everyone. One of the most haunting statements I've ever heard read ever by a detective. But in the end, Charlie fooled everyone. Here's my theory. And I could be wrong. Again, I usually am. Charlie was never dormant from the get-go. Once he, once he started getting older and he was married and he had the freedom, he was able to maneuver and do what he pleased and murder as many women as he can. Do I think that he has a small number? Absolutely not. There's no way. There's no way. I'm pretty sure he might be, if not the most prolific serial killer who has never been identified or caught. I mean, he only he has he has three murders under his belt as of right now, possibly four, but they haven't fully. Well, we'll say four because of the per, the Parisho murder. Well, we'll say four because it was murdered in the same exact fashion. So he killed his mom, his wife, his niece, and the Parisho. But I guarantee you, that's four murders as a serial killer. But I guarantee you, there's a lot more out there than just those. There's no way that this kid stayed dormant without having the help that he needed. I guarantee you, he didn't continue any sort of psychiatric therapy or treatment. I guarantee it. A lot of people don't. A lot of people say, oh, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. And then go and treat it for, for the rest of their lives. When in reality, they're battling every single day. But I guarantee you, I, I'm going to th- go out on a limb and say that this guy, Charlie Brandt, is probably one, up there with, as being one of the most prolific serial killers in the United States. He might, he might be the most slickest. He might be one of the most intelligent killers out there. And he slipped up, realized that he got, and he killed himself because he realized that if he stayed alive, then he would tell about how many people he's actually murdered from, from his entire life, throughout his entire life. So he said, look, I'd rather just, just kill myself and not give myself over to, to the, to the uh, state. That way I know that I'm in the clear and nothing's going to happen to me. Boom, mic drop. 
That's that's my theory. If you think I'm wrong, let me know. Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com, not Gmail, at mail, M-A-I-L. But I guarantee you that that he has way more bodies than the four and possibly a couple of others that, that the cops are trying to put on him. There's no way that somebody this 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 intelligent was able to to get away with only four or be or only have four bodies. There's no way. I'm telling you that right now. And we and we, unfortunately we're never gonna know. And this is why the case, this is why I did I did this episode. It was just so interesting for me to realize that there's no end. We're never gonna know what exactly happened. Stay tuned for a special little treat. And I appreciate each and every one of you. Please remember to share my podcast with everyone you know. Go to iTunes. Uh, leave a comment, rate my show. It helps me climb up my numbers, build it up here. And other than that, as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. I haven't told this story. I can't remember when. This is Investigator Rob Hemmert with the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. And the person being interviewed is Angela, and the last name is Brant. That's all right. Okay, I'm okay. All right. It was January 3rd, 1971. Charlie was 13? Yes. And Angela, you were how old? 15. 15. Tell me again what took place and what was going on. 9, 10 p.m. Okay. We um, had just gotten a color TV. Right. So we were all sitting around watching the FBI, you know, Efren Zimbalist Jr. and all that. Okay. Um, the FBI was over. We went upstairs. I went and got in bed to read my book like I always did before I went to sleep. Okay. My mom... We're in a bath and read Time magazine. My dad was shaving. Okay. So you're, you're in your bed reading, and what happens next? I heard loud noises, which I perceived to be firecrackers. Okay. For the simple reason, not that that makes any sense. That's all right. But, I mean, you know, I sure. just, what other loud noise is there? Popping. Yeah, just a really loud, loud noise. And I just, like I said, I just thought it was firecrackers, so I started pulling the covers back to see why on earth, you know, there was all this noise going on. But then I heard my father yell, um, Charlie, don't, or Charlie, stop. And my mom was just screaming. And the last thing she ever, the last thing I ever heard my mom say was Angela, call the police. So what happens after that? So um, I, as I said, I was removing the covers from my bed and getting out of the bed. And all this took place in split seconds. Okay. I mean, it, we couldn't, this has got to be less than a minute, I would think, Okay. Right. And I get up, and as I'm getting up, he comes into my room. Charlie. Charlie. Okay. Uh, brandishing the gun, a gun. I didn't even realize what it really was, I mean, until he aimed it at me, and he pulled the trigger. Okay. So you hear it click. I, and I was going to say, and, it, and it, I could hear it click. Okay. And uh, uh, I guess when he realized the gun didn't have any more bullets, that must be what he threw it on the floor. And as I said, I was lucid enough to kick it under the bed. I didn't know if it had any bullets in it or not. I don't even know what was going on. Right. And then an, a physical altercation ensued. I imagine, I think he struck me. I do. I think he, because I had blood and just bruises, and I fought back. This is the only physical altercation I've ever been in in my entire life. Okay. Okay, and I guess I won because I'm here to tell about it. I don't right. know. right. And um, I just still, I, my brain, I remember I was only 15, my brain was trying to assimilate what was going on, and I was trying to get away from him at the same time. He was very strong. Next thing I know, 
that I can remember is I was laying flat on my back. My bed was right here. On the bed? This, no, on, on the, the floor. floor. Okay. Probably knocked me to the floor. I don't know. Okay. And he was sitting on me, and he was strangling me. Okay. Okay. I was drifting in and out. I don't think that I got him off of me physically. All right. I remember the way I remember it is I saw the weird look on his face. The madness, the, the glazed over look, okay. I thought disappear. He just looked more like himself and he said, what am I doing? Or what have I done? And I remember perfectly saying, I don't know, but I think you shot dad. Because I heard my dad yelling, Charlie, don't do that, or Charlie, stop. And he said, oh, I did, or whatever. I said, I don't know, but get off of me so we can figure it out, okay? And he did, he got off of me. My next step, I was trying to get out of the house. He goes, well, you're not going to leave me, are you? Of course I said no. Sorry. No, I would run out the door. And I did as soon as I thought he was far enough away. I ran. Have you ever seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah. I saw it once in my life. I could never watch it again. You know the girl screaming? Yeah. The way she ran screaming? That was me. I was just a little girl. I was running through the snow in my bloody nightgown, torn, just screaming. I got to the first house right across the street. I didn't knock on the door. I turned the knob, and it was locked. And then I ran to the next house, and by the time I got to the next house, my brother had apparently come down the steps. He was outside. And all my life, I've heard him screaming after me, Angie, you promised you wouldn't leave me. You promised you wouldn't leave me. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Beautiful friend, 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 friend. Graveyard Grumbler Graveyard Podcast. Grumbler.